I think in this theater particularly, nothing was really able to get done without relationships and without actually utilizing the capabilities of the ally too. Welcome to the Air Force Doctrine Podcast. On this episode, I sit down with Major Daniel Jackson to examine lessons learned in doctrine from the U.S.'s involvement in the China-Burma-India theater in the period leading up to and during the Second World War. Major Daniel J. Jackson is currently a graduate student of history in the U.S. Air Force's Advanced Academic Degree Program at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where he is researching the development of U.S. Allied Air Forces in East and Southeast Asia during the Cold War. Prior to his time as a graduate student, Major Jackson flew 236 combat missions and 125 combat support missions in support of Operations Inherent Resolve, Freedom Sentinel, Enduring Freedom, and Enduring Freedom Philippines. Dan has also published three books about World War II in China, including The Forgotten Squadron and Famine, Sword, and Fire. His most recent book, Fallen Tigers, The Fate of America's Missing Airmen in China During World War II, recently received the Air Force Historical Foundation's Book Prize. Dan's extensive research and key insights into the application of air power can provide listeners lessons learned in the China, Burma, India theater that still have application to modern Air Force strategy and operations. Please join us. Dan, thanks for being here today. I just heard your bio. Quite impressive. It's good to see a pilot to not only have both the, the actionable tactical knowledge, but also to have the historical knowledge. So I'm, I'm, I'm proud to have you part of the Air Force. I'm very excited to have you here today. So thank you for coming. Well, thanks for having me, Nick. Appreciate As I read through your incredible body of work, the three books that you had out that we talked about in your bio, your knowledge of the China-Burma-India theater is extensive. And so I thought we could look at some of those look at the theater in general. We'll talk about the role of Chenault and his Flying Tigers and how that evolved over the years. And we'll we'll talk about how that connects to some of the current doctrine and the various lessons learned throughout all that. So just to kind of get us started, what is the 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 CBI theater? Who are kind of the major players and, and, and why was air power so important? Yeah. CBI is so interesting because it is enormous. You're talking about two of the most populous nations in the world then and now, India and China with, with Burma wedged in between there. And you're talking about a very complex situation where both of them are dealing with very different situations. India at that time is a British imperial possession, as is Burma at the start of the conflict. China, ostensibly a republic, has been getting kicked pretty hard over the last 100 years, pretty much, as it's been picked apart by colonial powers, Britain, France, Japan, and uh, even the United States to some extent, participating in putting down the Boxer Rebellion and, and some other events. And so once they established the Republic in 1911, it's a very fragmented nation. It, it doesn't have like a, a, a real central political authority, even though that's how it's kind of imagined in the United States of America. We imagine Chiang Kai-shek as the president of this unified democratic state, which is not democratic at the time and not unified either. There's warlords all over the place that he's having to parlay with to secure his power. He's having to deal with organized crime, uh, and he's dealing with the uh, communist insurrection that's happening uh, throughout China as well. And so against that backdrop, the Japanese sort of prompted by the Great Depression to build their own sort of self-sufficient economic sphere are looking to expand in, into that. So 19, uh, early 1930s, they expand into Manchuria, northeast China. Uh, 1932, they actually end up battling 
the nationalist Chinese forces in Shanghai and uh, withdrawing. And so you have this kind of skirmishing happening in Northeast China for the better part of five years. And then in 37, it turns into uh, all-out warfare with the Japanese unleashing a massive offensive that four years prior to the United States becoming involved in the war, that essentially takes most of China's industry, about 90% of China's industry, takes all of their large population centers along the coast, takes their ports, and kind of confines nationalist China to the interior. And so that's essentially where we find them when America becomes involved. What's interesting is we one of the distinctive things about the CBI theater is just how important the personalities are to understanding it, because they have outsized influence on what happens. So we've got Chiang Kai-shek, the leader of nationalist China. We have Mao Zedong, the leader of the communists, who gradually increases in, in importance as the war goes on. The communists are able to take advantage of, of the nationalists getting pushed back by the Japanese to expand their influence uh, throughout the country. We've got Joe Stilwell, who at the beginning of World War II, or just prior to the beginning of World War II, was rated as the number one major general in the United States Army. He's seen as this very promising, very capable commander, and he's sent out there to essentially help the Chinese get their stuff in order and repel the Japanese invasion in Burma. And then you've got Claire Chenault, who is this sort of air power apostate who gets pushed out of the uh, U.S. Army Air Corps in 1936. He's got some health problems. He's a lifelong chain smoker. He's got this bronchitis that lays him down for weeks at a time. But as a, an instructor at the Air Corps Tactical School, he also found himself as kind of a lone voice champion uh, fighter aviation when daytime strategic bombing was the uh, doctrine of the day. And so he's kind of pushed out in 1936, ends up as a contractor in China in 1937, really just looking at, he's supposed to provide an assessment of the Chinese Air Force to Chiang Kai-shek and his wife, who's actually running a lot of the aeronautical stuff on his behalf. And he ends up there like six weeks before the Marco Polo Bridge incident starts off general war and ends up uh, advising the Chinese Air Force through essentially their retreat into the interior throughout the, the late 1930s there. So that's kind of the, the cast of characters that we're dealing with. What's interesting is that really none of them get along. Obviously, Chiang Kai-shek and Mao Zedong are involved in essentially what's a civil war. Even though they say that they're calling a truce to fight the Japanese, there's still a lot of combat between them all throughout World War II. Chiang Kai-shek and Joe Stilwell don't get along at all. Chiang Kai-shek sees Stilwell as incompetent because he takes the best Chinese divisions and kind of squanders them in Burma in 1942. Joe Stilwell sees Chiang Kai-shek as corrupt and leading a corrupt state. And then Joe Stilwell and Claire Chenault don't like each other because Claire Chenault is a big Chiang Kai-shek advocate. He's also a big air power zealot, and Joe Stilwell is a traditional ground-pounding infantryman. So that kind of sets up the interpersonal conflict that comes to define this theater and really kind of puts a ceiling on what's able to be accomplished during the war there. But the relationship between the Americans, Chiang Kai-shek, Mao, various other guerrillas, we say we're allied with China, but China is fractured. The only thing we can really say definitively is we're, we're against the Japanese. Is that correct? Well, it's interesting. Franklin Roosevelt had a very romantic idea about China and what China could become. His family had been involved in a lot of the China trade through a lot of the 19th century, a lot of the 1800s, when the clipper ships were going to China from the United States. And so he had these romantic ideas about China as a potential democracy in the Far East, as uh, Chiang Kai-shek as a democratic leader in the Far East. So officially, there was a relationship with nationalist China, with Chiang Kai-shek. 
Now, there were unofficial relationships with a lot of these other warlords, and there was an unofficial relationship with the communists, including an, an observer mission that went out there later in the war. And even Chenault, who was very dedicated to Chiang Kai-shek, opened up relations with a lot of the communist formations throughout the countryside in order to uh, better get intelligence and rescue his airmen. So it was complicated, but there was also an official relationship with the nationalist government. I just want to make sure I understand that, because I know in a lot of your work, the the relationships becomes super important, how these relationships get built. And, and just for our listeners, understanding the complexity of that, you know, the, the, the greater China, is, as I understand, as you're saying, that uh, Roosevelt's trying to preserve the greater China and currently closer with the nationalist piece, but uh, all these other players are, are, are certainly a major part of that. One thing that I think is interesting, you identified Chenault as an outsider to the, uh, or what Malcolm Gladwell called the bomber mafia. You also identify in your book that he thought about warfare differently, not just air power, but warfare differently. He seemed to what we now call a regular versus traditional warfare. He seemed to blend these. And I and I thought maybe you could go into that a little bit about how, how really did Chenault think about warfare that begins to shape how he approaches his overall plans in China? Chenault is an interesting blend of romantic and pragmatist. He really saw himself as descending from this tradition of Confederate cavalry officers from the Civil War. He had that in his own family background. He was born in Commerce City, Texas. He grew up in Louisiana. And a lot of his childhood reading the Civil War books on his grandpa's bookshelf and and really saw himself as having a kinship to those Confederate cavalry officers. So he was thinking about more irregular means of, of warfare, even still subjected to like a larger war, like the Civil War, uh, the kind of irregular means that, that Jeb Stewart was employing against the Union. So that was already embedded in his imagination. And I think... He, like a lot of World War I era fighter pilots, kind of saw themselves as descended from the cavalry tradition in a very romantic way. And so I think that is already a part of his thought process. But then when he was at the Air Corps Tactical School, he was really pushing a lot of tactical development using large scale maneuvers and exercises and really studying the issues and, and kind of taking more of an analytical mind to it. Uh, and so he uses these exercises to show that observers tied into a network that is tied into a command center that's directing responding fighters can effectively respond to bomber aircraft, which was his heresy. So he's not just coming up with the, these bright ideas, he's really putting them to the test. And it's interesting because when he gets to China, he's actually able to implement these things in an actual wartime situation. So he gets to China, six weeks later, the war breaks out, and one of his first projects is to work with the Chinese to build a warning network around the nationalist capital at Nanjing. And the nationalists at this point have a very patchwork air force that's assembled from random airplanes that they've gotten from the United States, from Italy, and a host of other places. They've been trained by Russians, they've been trained by Germans, they've been trained by Italians, by Americans and not always very well. And the Japanese, by contrast, are a fairly professional fighting force. They've got a good system of training. Their pilots are experienced and trained. They're using state-of-the-art equipment. And so what's interesting is that using this network to warn the Chinese fighters in defense of Nanjing, in August of 1937, the Chinese Air Force claims 
54 uh, Japanese aircraft shot down in just three days, which essentially forces the Japanese to now provide fighter escort for their bombers on these bombing missions. And that fighter escort is pretty effective because those fighters are superior quality. Those pilots are superior quality to a lot of the Chinese that are going up against them. But it's interesting because in that brief period where those undefended bombers were being met by Chinese fighters that were directed by that warning network, they're very effective. And so he felt very affirmed in his ideas that he developed well in the Air Corps and essentially builds that throughout the uh, the Chinese system during the war. And that's what the uh, when the United States finally does arrive in 1942, when the United States Army Air Forces arrive, or even when the American Volunteer Group arrives in, in 1941, they're stepping into that system in being that he's built since 1937 that's already proved its effectiveness with inferior equipment. That's interesting. We talk a lot about the competition continuum these days, these actions that happen far left of, of our armed conflict and hopefully prevent armed conflict. And so you start to talk a little bit about the warning network. And so eventually we do want to get to the, the Flying Tigers, the ABG arriving. But Chenault is coming over and working with the Chinese Air Force without American pilots is doing is laying out a lot of these particular activities. And many of the activities are going to allow him to do operations that uh, are very similar to ACE. So I, I wanted to give you an opportunity because I, I know there's more than just a warning network. He does at least two other tasks. And I, I wanted to kind of talk a little bit about that that your book highlights. Yeah, so when we look at the system and being that the United States, that the AVG and the United States Army Air Forces steps into there, there's been a lot of work that's been done prior to Pearl Harbor to make that possible, to make that happen. And it's interesting because I think the natural contrast is to look at what the U.S. Army Air Forces had in the Philippines at the same time. Because when the Japanese attacked the Philippines in December 1941, the Americans are caught completely unprepared because they have the airplanes there, but they're not tied into any sort of overarching system. There's no radar. They just started installing the first radar sites, but even those didn't like feed into any sort of command structure. There's no system for retrieving pilots that have bailed out. There's no system for dispersal of aircrafts to provide for protection from Japanese air raids. And so the consequence is that in the first three days of the war, the Army Air Forces loses 60-some-odd of their 100 fighter planes, many of them on the ground, but a lot of them in aerial combat as well. And for the entire campaign through the fall of Bataan, they managed to shoot down just a little over 30 Japanese aircraft. The American Volunteer Group, in the same, roughly the same period, loses 12 airplanes in aerial combat and claims 297 Japanese planes. And even the most conservative estimates are that they shot down at least 115. So what's interesting is a lot of the popular histories focus on the pilots who are characters, the organization, which is obviously novel, and the airplanes themselves, which are decorated with their shark mouths and everything. And there's a lot of dash and courage that's kind of attributed to the outsized results that they achieved. But the real difference is that the American airmen in the Philippines didn't have this, this pre-constructed system, and the Americans in China did. And the, the pieces of that were the warning net, which we already talked about, but which by 1941 had expanded throughout almost all of China. In fact, there were a lot of parts of occupied China, Japanese-occupied China, that still had these uh, observers. So Chanel boasted that sometimes he would get calls when the Japanese airplanes were actually warming up prior to takeoff. 
And he was able to basically put his pilots on alert and then wait to launch them until when they needed to launch, basically 20 minutes prior to the Japanese arriving at the airfield that they were going to target, which they'd be able to determine based off of the, you know, the vectors as these guys are coming across the warning net stations. And that way, not only was he able to position his forces for advantage, for a tactical advantage, but he was also able to conserve resources like gasoline, which was hard to get to China and therefore critical to preserve. So that's part of it. Airfields is another part of it. What's interesting, Ernest Hemingway did a reporting trip to China in 1941. And he went to Sichuan province and witnessed tens of thousands of Chinese men, women, and children hand building a runway. What was fascinating about this is the United States isn't in the war at this point. And it's not really clear if slash when they will be in the war. They did open lend lease to China, but it's unclear what that's gonna look like practically speaking. But at this time, the Chinese had embarked on building over 100 airfields throughout China by hand and able to, many of them, including this one that Hemingway witnessed, able to handle B-17s. And it is basically like an article of faith that this is going to be useful at some point. But there was literally nothing in China that made that useful now. The, the Japanese, a year prior, had already rolled out their A6M Zero fighter that was so completely superior to anything the Chinese had that the Chinese actually ended up pulling most of their air force out of combat because they were just getting destroyed. The, the Zero debuted in August of 1940, shot down 13 Chinese airplanes in its first combat for zero losses. None. Complete air dominance. So amid this time of Japanese air supremacy, the Chinese are building 100 airfields throughout China, and that infrastructure would be vital to American operations later on, especially when it came to trying to reach targets that were on the China coast or further afield like Taiwan or even Japan. And then you had the War Area Service Corps, which was essentially a Chinese organization that provided the housing, the food, kind of the, all the care and feeding of any American airmen that ended up over there. That started with the American Volunteer Group, and then continued with the Army Air Force organizations that followed. And they provided that for $1 per American per day, which was pretty crazy good deal even back then. That essentially allowed Chanel to operate on a tiny fraction of what an Air Force that size would normally require in, in the way of logistics. It, it wasn't always the preferable circumstances for the Americans, they ate a lot of eggs and rice and the accommodations weren't state of the art, but they were pretty good. They were, especially when you compare it to the guys living in tents in North Africa and stuff like that, it wasn't all that bad. And then the last piece that the Chinese provided was rescue. And this was something that was not really fully anticipated at the beginning, especially Chenault's defensive scheme at the beginning. Anybody that's getting shot down is usually getting shot down pretty close to a friendly air base, right? Because they're mostly acting defensively against Japanese bombing raids. But as they push out on the offensive, and Chenault as a fighter pilot is very offensive-minded. He wants to hit the, the Japanese where it hurts. And then conceiving himself in this sort of Jeb Stewart cavalry leader mold, he also wants to have this, this fluid approach that hits the enemy, then then disappears hits them somewhere else, you know, kind of this dislocative approach, he starts losing guys over occupied territory. And what's really interesting is that first, and this is really apparent with the Doolittle Raid, for example, 
nobody in China knew that the Doolittle raid was coming. Stillwell had been sort of forewarned. He didn't really tell anybody. He didn't make adequate preparations. This was a bone of contention between him and Chenault and Chiang Kai-shek for a long time to come. So essentially, all these bombers end up arriving over China. People are bailing out, crash landing, et cetera. And it's this organic reaction of a lot of Chinese peasants, like just normal everyday people, to rescue these guys get them to nationalist authorities and get them back to the interior to safety. And so 65 guys are, are rescued more or less spontaneously. And essentially this spontaneous reaction was more or less the initial reaction for everybody that ended up being rescued throughout the war. My Fallen Tigers was about this phenomenon. And what was interesting was instead of looking anecdotally at some of these stories, I compiled a database of every single aircraft that was reported missing on a combat mission over China. So combat missions, I didn't include like the, the hump airlift that was going from India to China, but all the combat missions in China, 14th Air Force, American Volunteer Group, China Air Task Force, 20th Army Air Force with the B-29s. And what was interesting was 698 aircraft reported missing, 1,907 airmen reported missing. Of those, just over 50%, were killed or are still missing, still reported missing, so obviously presumed dead, which is roughly the equivalent of what happened in Western Europe. You're declared missing because you're in a war and presumably people are trying to kill you. So it's not surprising that about half of them didn't make it through the crash or bailout. For those that did make it out, what's really interesting is that in Western Europe, if you survive the crash or bailout with that 50-50 chance, you had about a 20% uh, chance of an underground organization getting you back to friendly hands. And so it's interesting because we have this very romantic idea of like the, the French resistance, the Belgian resistance, uh, as our behind the lines allies during World War II risking their lives to rescue American airmen, which is true to an extent. But what's interesting is the contrast with China, where if you survived the crash or bailout, that 50-50 chance, you had over a 90% chance of being brought back to friendly territory. There's one story where an airman attacking an airfield in Shanghai, which is deep within Japanese-occupied territory. In a P-51 Mustang, he took some ground fire, his engine seized, he bailed out one mile away from the Japanese airfield that he had just been strafing. The guys that shot him down literally watch him bail out of his airplane and float to the ground. They all run over, get in a truck, the truck drives the one mile to get to where this guy bailed out. And by the time they get there, he's already gone. The Chinese civilians in that area traded clothes with him put him on the back of an ox cart, and he began his journey, journey back to friendly lines. It happened that fast. It took him two months to get back to friendly lines, but the initial reaction happened that fast and was uh, organic. So those were the, the four big areas that the, the infrastructure had already been begun, the relationship had already been begun prior to the Americans entering the war that enabled American success during the war, being the warning net the airfield construction, the War Area Service Corps, and the eventual rescue of American airmen. Dan, that's fascinating. Your book, Fallen Tigers, goes into a lot of the personal recovery stuff. Readers will be able to find terms that they are very familiar with. Pointy talkies, blood chits, understanding some basic languages, some basic hand signals. You're, you're going to see all of that play out. I think you even talk about uh, a majority of you, the reports that you read mentioning the pointy talkie as being important. One of the big things in, in modern warfare, we talk a lot about information operations. Your book highlights the Chinese that supported the, these airmen 
uh, enduring threats to life, severe retribution uh, from the Japanese for helping out, uh, but they still do it. It's very inspiring to see that. But at the same time, I think it's interesting that Japanese are always trying to broadcast this idea of uh, Asia for Asians, this narrative, and the Chinese are not buying this whatsoever. And so I, I don't know if you're comfortable talking a little bit about how that larger narrative by the American presence has kind of inspired the Chinese, our early involvement there. I, I think that's a very important piece from your work. Those are really good points. There's a few things to that, right? So first of all, a lot of times narrative has a lot of trouble overcoming reality. So the Japanese could say all the wonderful things that they wanted to say, but their behavior during the war in China was so brutal at points that it obviously undermined that. And it touched people so thoroughly that that the loss was so overwhelming that people were responding to reality when they were responding against the Japanese. That being said, there were a lot of collaborators, so-called collaborators in China that were ostensibly working with the Japanese occupation governments. Uh, Wang Jingwei famously built a rival regime to Chiang Kai-shek. But what's interesting is that when American airmen are, are falling on these guys, very, very rarely, I only found a couple of instances are the so-called collaborators actually handing over American airmen to the Japanese. It, there's one case where some U.S. Navy airmen that had bombed Hong Kong bail out because they're, they're hit over Hong Kong fall into the hands of collaborators. The collaborators smuggle them out of Hong Kong under the nose of the Japanese and hand them over to the nationalists for uh, repatriation to the Americans. So it's interesting because we talked about China not being a, a real unified political entity during World War II, but what's very clear is that they saw themselves as Chinese in a, as a cultural entity. So there is a cultural entity of China. These people see themselves as Chinese, whether they believe in the uh, Wang Jingwei government, the Chiang Kai-shek government, whether they believe in Mao Zedong, they all see common cause in opposing Japanese conquest. And so these guys, regardless of their political affiliation, are helping American airmen because they see them as essential to repelling the Japanese. And part of what's interesting is when you talk about the attitudes of the local people, this was something that Chanel was very cognizant of. And so one of the disputes between him and Stillwell was how to prosecute the war. And Stillwell had a very traditional approach to that, which was a ground invasion of Burma to reestablish the Burma Road, to supply China by land, to build up China's divisions and retrain them in more of an American mold, and then to advance with those divisions from Southwest China up into the center and then eventually to the coast. A very traditional offensive in a very traditional foot soldier mold that would have taken two plus years to accomplish, which is not surprising given the, the timelines of World War II and the space involved. But the problem is, is that you go, go years without Chinese people on the coast or in the interior of China, even realizing that there's continued resistance against the Japanese. And so the strength of Chenault's campaign and what he one of the reasons that he actively pushed for it was American airplanes can strike Japan across the entire breadth of China. And what's interesting is that when you look at where people were rescued, it covers the breadth of China, the whole country. And so people are seeing American airplanes taking the fight to the Japanese everywhere, whether they live in occupied Shanghai, whether they live in Inner Mongolia, whether they live in occupied Hong Kong, American airplanes are taking the fight to the Japanese everywhere. And so that really reinvigorates this notion that 
the fight is still going on, that this is not over yet. And especially as that air campaign becomes more and more active, really encourages the Chinese to continue their resistance, even if it's more of a passive resistance uh, and more of a opportunistic resistance, it, they are encouraged to continue those things against the Japanese occupation. Yeah, absolutely. That That's fascinating. Uh, you really highlighted something that's mentioned in the irregular warfare definition is this idea of the irrelevant populations. And while this action seems to be these kind of aircraft raids are very conventional type of activities, the influence it's having on the population of the Chinese. I think this really highlights what your book gets gets at, which is uh, how Chenault fought differently about war. And so he brings that relevant population. Uh, there's a story in your book that really highlights this in terms of his offensive operations. There's a lot of anti-shipping targeting. And then one of his crews is, is rescued by a, a fisherman. And so suddenly they, they start changing the way in which they're targeting because they don't want to accidentally sway the population by targeting a, a fisherman. Uh, well, would you like to tell the story a little bit better than I do, perhaps? It's, it's an interesting story because there was not an instance of a crew being rescued from further out to sea. These guys were out over the Gulf of Tonkin uh, attacking Japanese shipping. This was actually one of the very first anti-shipping strikes. These guys end up getting shot down by the boat that they're targeting, and they're in a raft in the middle of the Gulf of Tonkin. There's no U.S. submarine activity in this area at the time. These like The odds of these guys getting picked up are pretty nil. And then I'm getting picked up by this wooden sailing junk that's actually transporting rice from uh, Hanoi, from the, the port of Haiphong in, in Vietnam, to southern China. And so it's really interesting because these guys are Chinese sailors. They've been doing this for years. This is ancient technology. It's, it's literally a sailboat. But when you think about where they're coming from, which is Japanese-occupied Vietnam, and where they're going to, which is Japanese-occupied China, and where they even land them, which is Japanese-occupied China, technically, and hand them over to the magistrate there, who's technically an employee of the Japanese puppet government. Of the... <laughs> and, uh, and that magistrate essentially gets them into nationalist hands. And, and it turns out that this magistrate has frequent communication with the nationalists. It really blurs a lot of the lines of who we think of as friend and enemy in that situation. And it really made the... Uh, 14th Air Force Intelligence really pause and think, like, what sorts of vessels should we be targeting? Like, here's somebody that's doing this grain shipment. Technically, that's enemy commerce, you know, and, and under what we would traditionally believe to be the rules of war, that would be a targetable ship in a lot of ways, right? But the realization that, like, these guys <laughs> might be doing that, but they're doing that because they've always done that. And by their actions, their loyalties are pretty clear of, of what they're willing to do. And, and that ripples all the way through the, the uh, supposed puppet government that these guys interact with along the way. So it is very interesting to, to think about that because Chanel makes full use of those uh, divided loyalties, if you will, or, or that gray space of that uh, uncertainty over, over uh, who controls what. And, and he really makes use of it. Like a lot of these guys that are going on missions, they're getting briefings beforehand of, if they get hit coming over the target, which direction they should turn to best come into contact with friendly populations. Because as they prosecute the war, Chanel realizes that the Japanese really only own the space they are literally standing on. They occupy these points and lines, the points, these strategic accounts they hold, and the lines, the railroads and roads between them, and nothing else. 
And so as the war develops, really the only way that you become a POW if you get shot down in China is if you land on top of a Japanese soldier. There are very few cases of it, people becoming POWs in any other way. Uh, and, and so they take full advantage of the sympathies of the, the civilian population, for sure. I want to get to a couple of the more offensive stuff. One thing I think is very important is we talked about this network of airfields, this air warning system. And as I was reading this, I started seeing a lot of similarities with ACE. Uh, Schnault became very maneuverable. He he used this network and this uh, infrastructure that he had built long before the ABG shows up, before the 14th eventually gets stood up. How does, uh, you know, just in the contrast of ACE, how does he use these airfields to create effects against the Japanese? There's there's a few things to this, right? But essentially, Chenault is using these airfields. He's playing a shell game with the Japanese, and he's using these airfields to create opportunities for tactical gains, for for strikes on lucrative Japanese targets, and then minimizes exposure to any counterstrikes by the Japanese Air Force. There are three really spectacular examples where he achieves good results. The first time that he ever does this. He stages from, he had his kind of safe region in Southwest China, mostly in Yunnan province, centered on Kunming, which was the headquarters of the American air effort for most of the war. And through the use of the warning net, through the use of, of the P-40s to tactical effect as interceptors, the Japanese really can't make a lot of forays into that zone anymore because they take such losses that it's really not worth the expense. And so he's got kind of a safe base area that he can operate out of. But then these airfields that the Chinese have built, most of them prior to the Americans even showing up, but then they continue this construction project throughout the war. These things go all the way practically to the coast. And so in 1942, he stages P-40s and B-25s, which are both fairly short range, the P-40 especially, short range aircraft, further east to Guilin in Guangxi province, and they are able from there to reach out and actually strike Japanese Hong Kong, Jap Japanese-occupied Hong Kong, in the first raid on that city during the war, which is pretty spectacular. And then what's interesting is after they do their strikes, they do some uh, day raid, they do some night raids, and then they withdraw from Guilin back into the safe zone in Yunnan province. And the Japanese bomb the crap out of Guilin for several weeks, and it's a gravel runway. So the Chinese just go fill in the holes and it's operational again a few days later. And so this starts this kind of pattern of operations for Chenault's raids that he does on lucrative Japanese targets, where there's this period of buildup of supplies at the forward airfields. Some of the supplies are flown in, but a lot of them have to travel overland. And so you're talking about a logistics system that is a few railroads, very few, and a lot of ox carts. And they're literally putting 55-gallon fuel drums on ox carts, and they will the ox cart will take anywhere from a few weeks to a few months to reach its destination, depending on uh, how deep into China it has to go to deliver these supplies. And so they build up the fuel stockpiles, they build up the uh, munition stockpiles, and once they reach the level that they need for the operation, he stages through that field, uses those things for his raids of these Japanese positions, and then withdraws. The most famous one, in November 25th, 1943, they staged out of Suichuan. By then, Guilin had kind of been incorporated into the safe zone as Chanel's forces are expanding. And so they staged 250 miles further east through Suichuan, and they're able to strike Japanese-occupied Taiwan in a raid that uh, claims 
40 some odd Japanese planes for zero U.S. losses. And by the way, that's not just the U.S. on that. It also incorporates the new Chinese American Composite Wing, which is a joint U.S.-Chinese combat formation to kind of mentor a new Chinese Air Force in the beam during the war. Uh, and so they're able to do that. And once again, they do the big raid. They land back at Suichuan, gas up, return to the interior of China. Suichuan gets bombed for several weeks to little effect. They fill the holes back in, and they're able to use that field again. And then the last example, the last big famous raid was on Shanghai in January of 1945 with just P-51 Mustangs. They attack Shanghai. And this is important at this time because this is in cooperation with the Allied landings on Luzon in the Philippines, which is a huge operation. And so the Japanese are staging hundreds of airplanes through Shanghai to bolster the defense of Luzon in the Philippines. And, and so essentially, by staging through Nanchung, which is, again, further east, even in Suichuan, these P-51s are able to reach out to Shanghai, surprise attack on the Japanese airfields, and manage to destroy 80 Japanese planes for zero losses which is incredible. And then again, land, refuel, and then return to the, the interior to avoid the retribution that follows. It occurs to me one of the biggest things is as we're watching lessons learned uh, here in the May Center, bring back reports from testing ACE. The big thing that stands out is the difficulty of the logistics. But uh, you made me think if Chanel could do it by carrying 50-gallon drums on oxes, I feel like we can figure this out as well. Uh, so it's very, very interesting. <laughs> Well, for Chenault, the key piece of that, though, was not depending on his own resources to do that because he just didn't have them, right? and he couldn't have them because the American footprint was so light in China. It just wasn't possible for him to move that stuff out there himself. Even with his limited airlift resources, he contributed a little bit to that, but it just wasn't possible under his own power. He had to depend on local resources to move stuff out there, which meant being very creative in how the stuff moved out there. I don't think any logistician in World War II would have like espoused a preference for ox carts or for such a rinky-dink logistics system, right? Like it seems ridiculous on the face of it, but through his long association with the Chinese and just his being amongst that culture, working with those people for so long, he's he's kind of meeting them where they're at, you know, and and forming true partnership in that, you know, yes, these are American planes carrying out these raids for the most part. But without the Chinese contribution, whether it's logistical or, or repairing the airfields, et cetera, it's not possible. So he has to depend on these creative logistics chains that are carried out by locals in the local way in order to effectuate his, his raids, for sure. Again, highlighting the importance of that relationship and those activities prior to armed conflict. Definitely a theme throughout your work and very much noteworthy for, for our listeners. But there's another element that that really struck me. I started reading about uh, one particular squadron you highlighted, and I thought, oh boy, here's multi-capable airmen uh, in the CBI theater. So I, I thought maybe you could talk a little bit about the 19th Liaison Squadron, uh, what these guys did, and, and and just some of the capabilities of those airmen. The 19th Liaison Squadron is a great example of folks taking limited equipment and really improvising in some creative ways. I got to interview a couple of those guys <laughs> they're they awesome. They're taking this little L-5 light aircraft. They're operating from small fields that are packed out of rice paddies, basically, operating on the front lines, and they're doing a grab bag of missions from artillery adjustment, from delivering the mail, 
flying out stretcher cases to hospitals in the rear. And even uh, as the this Chinese offensive that they're supporting in Southwest China gets underway, they start actually doing even some forward air control from the air. They're dropping smoke grenades, they're talking on fighters, et cetera. So they're performing a variety of missions in this light utility plane, uh, but they're also operating from these forward airfields, which really limit what resources they have there. And so you have these sergeant pilots who are operating these light airplanes who are also responsible for maintaining their aircraft. And part of it is that the L-5 is a pretty simple airplane. You know, this is one of these cloth-covered airplanes. Uh, it's got, I think, a 150-horsepower engine on it. It's not super difficult to maintain, so expecting the pilot to both be able to operate and maintain it is not unreasonable, but it enables them to operate from a lot of places where you just can't get a large footprint operation. You know, at one point, they built a little airfield next to Tungchung, which is this Ming Dynasty walled city that's under siege by the uh, Chinese forces trying to retake it from the Japanese. And they're, they're essentially like taking off within sight of the front lines in, in this very mountainous terrain where you can't even get heavy artillery in there because you're talking about 10,000 foot plus mountains that you have to haul this stuff over. And so the air power aspect of it is very important because that's really the only heavy firepower that the Chinese have to depend upon. And these guys are able to support them from the front lines. And so you can imagine an army that is operating with like straw sandals and some crappy kind uniforms, doesn't even have helmets. Uh, they've got like some 1930s Mauser rifles and stuff like that to have the most state-of-the-art airplanes providing close air support for them is, is very important. But it, it wasn't really possible without these light airplanes operating directly from the front, essentially. And then also the uh, morale factor of if they get shot, these little airplanes can actually evacuate them to hospitals in the rear when before, frankly speaking, they've probably just been left to die. Fascinating. Obviously, some technological changes there. Uh, much more difficult to repair an F-35 on a gravel runway. But it does beg the question of technological choices in the future based upon the operating environment and what we need to do. Absolutely. But, you know, it doesn't always have to be an F-35 either. Like the L-5 was not considered a state-of-the-art airplane at that time either. You know, they're not flying P-51s from these strips. And that wouldn't have been the airplane for those kinds of jobs either. Sometimes a simple airplane is the right airplane for those kinds of, of jobs, especially when you're looking at close coordination and cooperation with the, with the ground forces. So maybe there still is room for that kind of operation in the future. Well, Dan, we, we've been talking here. We've got three books out that I think are uh, all very fascinating. Every one of them I would highly recommend. Uh, we've talked about them a little bit in the bio. I also mentioned that Fall, Fallen Tigers has won the Air Force Historical Foundation's Book Prize for 2022. Congratulations on that. Again, I want to thank you for being here. I got a final question for you. So you spent a great deal of time studying the CBI theater, both in the interwar period, World War II, and uh, even now in your PhD work, you're looking in that same type of area. So as you've studied this and you think about your historical knowledge and you look to the future, what are kind of the, the big rocks that you think about from the past that influences the way that you, you think about the future? I think in this theater particularly, nothing was really able to get done without relationships and without 
actually utilizing the capabilities of the ally too. It wasn't just about bringing American capabilities to China and fighting the Japanese. It was also about utilizing the unique capabilities that the Chinese brought to bear, whether it was the warning net, the ability to to build this network of airfields, et cetera. And so the relationship aspect ended up being really important. And it's interesting because it, it comes full circle in the Cold War. Uh, one of the things that we did in China during World War II was attempt to rebuild the Chinese Air Force. And so I'd mentioned before the Chinese American deposit wing, essentially we send these guys to the United States, they get their basic flight training, they come back to what was then India is now Pakistan for advanced training in the P-40 and the B-25. And then essentially these organizations are sent back into combat into China. And every level of command in this organization from squadron commander, really from wing commander on down, squadron commander, flight commander, et cetera, has dual U.S. Chinese responsibility. So there's a U.S. and Chinese co-squadron commander, for example, uh, with the idea of eventually making this thing self-sufficient so the Chinese can begin flying their own combat missions unilaterally against the Japanese again. And it was uh, starting to become very effective, especially towards the end of the war. What's interesting is when we get to the Cold War and America kind of reinvigorates its interest in the region again after Korea is invaded, after South Korea is invaded, we find that these organizations end up being our link into partnership with the Republic of China, now installed on the island of Taiwan after losing the civil war to the communists. All of those uh, groups, the three combat groups that we built in the Chinese American Composite Wing still exist and actually retreated mostly intact to Taiwan, two fighter groups and a bomber group, and become the basis for the jet modernization that we do during the Cold War that ends up so successful in the Taiwan Straits crisis of 1958, defusing that situation by going toe-to-toe -to -toe against the Chinese communists in the skies over the Straits and wiping the floor with them in F-86s, Korean War surplus F-86s that we gave them. And it's not like, you know, a year prior to the Taiwan Straits crisis, we just started giving these guys jets in a vacuum and they figured out how to work them and it worked out. You know, this relationship goes back to World War II, the training relationship. Uh, the chief of staff of the Chinese Air Force was one of the officers that Chenault had worked closely with in Southwest China during the war. This relationship built up a competent nationalist Chinese Air Force so that we had people that already had a background in aviation that could use this equipment effectively that we were giving them during the Cold War. And, and so it just shows that like we have to take a long view to these sorts of things and trust that these relationships pay off in the fullness of time. It's not something that we can just be invested in to solve one tactical problem at one little point in time. You know, it's something that we have to be in for the long haul partnering with people to solve these these uh, common interests that we have, these, these common defense problems that we have. That's going to do it for this week's podcast. The show is recorded and produced by the Doctrine Outreach Section at the LeMay Center. Special thanks to our guest, Dan Jackson, the LeMay Center, and Air University. As always, the views expressed by our panel members are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of Air University, the Air Force, or any government agency. I'm Nicholas Underwood. We will see you next time.